So to get our brains and hearts and affections turning, I want to start with the question, um, do you take the time in your lives to think through motives? Motives are deep down in our thoughts, our hearts, and, and it's easy just to go through life not thinking through our motives. Are you honest about your motives? Put differently, do you take time to think through your affections? Now, just to define what we mean by affections, and, and I tend to agree with Jonathan Edwards, another great theologian and, and great man of God in, in church history. And affections, as in my understanding, just to sum it up, just to put it as simply as possible, they are our emotional attachments. If you have an affection for someone or something, it means that your emotions are attached to that person or object for better or worse. More importantly, can you articulate your deepest affections? Can you sit down in a conversation and, and unpack, well, I attach to this person or this thing because blank. Now, here's why it's important, because our affections determine our motives. And they're inextricably tied together. Here's what I mean. Up here, you see this image of Roblox, and this is a kid's online gaming platform. And my son came to us, and and, uh, he said, "Uh, Dad, I feel kind of left out at school. All my friends are playing uh, on this uh, website. And, uh, you know, I asked you before, but then um, myself and because of my brother-in-law and, si- and sister, they, they warned us that, that there could be some sketchy things about this site. So we kept them off it, but now all the kids are on it, apparently. And so, Dad, can, can I play it? And long story short, we kind of came up with an agreement. Well, we want to see you balanced in your life, just from reading and, and, and your other responsibilities and so forth. And so next day, it was almost... So it was so artificial. I, I could read right through him. He comes to me and he's like, Dad, I love reading. <laughs> right? And he hadn't said that in so long. Okay? And so his affections determine his motives, what he's attached to, whether it's to be included with his friends, to just have entertainment in his life and to enjoy these video games, whatever he's attached emotionally determined his motives. Now, when I get a call from my buddies and say, Albert, there's, I have a, an extra ticket to a round of golf or, or something that I, I enjoy, all of a sudden I become Mr. Clean. <laughs> and I don't need any initiation from my wife, but she'll notice, like, oh, my goodness, you're doing the laundry. You're, you're vacuuming. You're... And then it's like, uh, actually, my buddies called me. And so do you see again, just in my life, my affections... <laughs> And my affection should really be my wife and, and wanting to make her happy and, and therefore want to clean so forth. But my affections determine my motives. Now, as we come to Acts chapter 5, I, I think this passage in the big picture is really about our affections. How does Acts chapter 5 verses 1 to 16 call us to place our faith in Jesus? This Christian life, it's about placing your entire faith in this person and his work this, this Jesus and his work, placing on the cross all your sin, all your shortcomings, all your weaknesses, everything, and receiving his life. And so I believe Acts 5 is calling us to confess, to confess to the crucified Jesus your earthly affections. And let's just all be honest. We all have earthly affections. To use an even extreme, more extreme biblical term, we have idols in our hearts. 
that we set up in our hearts and our thoughts and our lives as little gods that we look to uh, for hoping that it will be our joy and, and even salvation. And as we confess these earthly affections to the crucified Christ, receive and overflow the risen Jesus' affection for you. That's where we want to, that's our goal. That's hopefully where we'll end up. Now, let's address the pink elephant in the room, because there is a pink elephant in the room. I thought after Jesus came, it was all about grace. And if you were paying attention to the reading, you saw two, a husband and wife, being smote on the spot for a lie. I thought it was all about grace after Jesus came. So what is up with Ananias and Sapphira being smote? To address the the pink elephant, just to, to start us off, would you consider this thought? God's grace must always remind us of why we need His grace in the first place. Meaning, God is still a God of judgment. But because He is also perfectly in His perfections, His attributes, He is not only a perfect God of justice and judgment and righteousness and holiness, but He is a perfect God of love and mercy and mercy that triumphs over judgment. And so he expresses his grace. He unfolds his new covenant of grace to perfection and completes it and sends his son Jesus that whoever believes in him should not perish, have their sins forgiven, and have eternal life. And so God's grace must always remind us of why we needed his grace in the first place, our inability to save ourselves before the judgment of God. Now, it's not to say that Ananias and Spire, we, we can't make any conclusion that they were judged by God and, and they were smote. But we don't know. I, I, I want to believe that they still went to, be, to spend eternity with God. They were still saved by His grace, but it was a judgment that God showed on earth. Why? Because Ananias and Sapphira became a stern example for the church that God's grace at work in us must overflow in a pursuit of holiness. Okay? And so it doesn't mean that Ananias and Sphere were in that instant condemned to hell. We, we can't conclude anything strongly from the text. My hope is that, yes, it was God's judgment, but to set a stern example that God's grace has to have a specific effect of pursuing holiness in our lives and that grace still saved them. So again... How does Acts 5 call us to place our faith in Jesus? Confess to the crucified Jesus your earthly affections. Receive and overflow the risen Jesus' affection for you. Now to your delight, today I only have one point, but about five subpoints. <laughs> so it's more like five points. But, but one point, and, and here's the main action that, that I want to, I believe Scripture is calling us to. Test your affections. Test your affections. Now, this isn't just some nice psychology 101. We see this idea here in this passage. In verse 2, to pick up, And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. That verb there, laid it, in the original language, it has a notion of preparing something for consumption. Preparing something to be used. And so they brought the proceeds and laid it at the apostles' feet to be used by the apostles for the work of the gospel. 
But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? There you see it. Even Peter is addressing, like a surgeon, precisely addressing the heart. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? And the word contrived there, it's translated differently, in the, at least in the ESV, but in the original language, it is the exact same word as laid it that we read before. And so we could read this. Why is it that you have laid this deed? You have prepared this deed for consumption in your own heart. See, what Peter is getting at is this idea of what we are attached to. Our emotional attachments, what our hearts are desiring and feeding on. Now, the biblical understanding of heart, it's a bit abstract, but when you look from Genesis to Revelation, the biblical understanding of heart is not, in our Western understanding, we usually just think of emotions and Cupid and so forth. But the biblical understanding of heart is actually the entire soul, the sum of our thoughts, our affections, our emotional attachments, and our choices or our will. And so our soul and our heart, to be healthy and functioning properly, it's like a three-legged stool. All the legs have to be even. All the legs have to be strong. Otherwise, your soul will be wobbly. So let me ask a, a reflective question, too, actually. What, what would sting you to trade for Jesus? Now, that question is especially for our Christian friends here. But to our non-Christian friends, this is what it comes down to. When you read of encounters with Jesus, a clear example is the rich young ruler. Jesus went right for the heart, for his affections. And he said, if you want to follow me, then you specifically rich young ruler, in your life, in your heart, you need to give up your riches. For all of us, it's, it's a different affection, a different emotional attachment. But what would sting to trade for Jesus? And sadly, this, your answer to this question is, is what will keep some of us, to my friends who aren't Christians here today, this may be where you're at because you know what it is that might sting to trade for Jesus. More to the point, what could you not trade for Jesus? And this is a question that even Christ's followers, every day we need to be open to answering and letting the Spirit to reveal these things. So, the main exhortation is test your affections now specifically. We'll see specific affections that need to be tested uh, in this passage. First, how deeply... Am I attached to self-sufficiency? Self-sufficiency basically means I can do it on my own. I want to be autonomous. I don't need other people's help. I want to be independent. No strings attached to other people and responsibilities. I'm, I'm good enough on my own. How deeply am I attached to self-sufficiency? Where do we see this? In verse 1, Luke records, but, and he's contrasting to the verses right prior when Joseph or Barnabas from a good place, a good heart, sold his land and brought the proceeds to the apostles and gave it with a pure heart. And now Luke is contrasting Ananias and Sapphira. So, but a man named Ananias and with his wife Sapphira. Now, ironically, Ananias is a Hebrew name and it means to whom God has given graciously. 
Ananias forgot the meaning and identity of his own given name. That everything in his life was from God in the first place. And Sapphira means sapphire. Or also, other uh, dictionaries say, beautiful. And so Sapphira, ironically and sadly, forgot true beauty. An honest heart. Truth in the innermost parts, as the psalmist says, before God. Did you decide to be born? Did your parents decide to be born? As we think backwards where our sustenance, where our life came from in the first place, we need to agree with the psalmist in 139. You saw me before I was born. God saw us. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. Our breath, our health, our possessions, our mind, our intellect, our, our skills, our talents, our competencies, all our blessings are from God. Second, how deeply attached am I to money and material things? Not only do we have to test our self-sufficiency and our emotional attachment and to, to wanting to be independent, but how deeply am I attached to money and material things? So Luke, Luke continues, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, material things. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. It's like, man, this is a big sacrifice, and, but I, I, I want to profit from this as well, so I'm going to pocket some of it. And brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, we need to remember the motivation for the early church's radical generosity. And just to go back a little bit to Acts chapter 4, where it recounts that they all had everything in common. They were willing, not, there was not one person in need. And so, earlier in chapter 4, verse 33, Luke describes, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And because of this testimony to the resurrection, the fact that Jesus was alive, that death did not hold him, that his body did not corrupt, that God was true to his promises and his prophecies in Scripture to raise Jesus to defeat sin and death. Because of that, specifically the resurrection, there was a great grace upon them all. And that great grace led to this generosity. The reason why they were motivated to be so generous is because they were convinced that this life is not everything. And we have a hope for another life after this life. And so it put everything temporal, everything right now, everything concrete, everything material and money into perspective that this is not our everything. And so Peter addresses Ananias. Verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land and here is a very profound insight by Peter. Verse 4, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Meaning God, He blesses us with the joy of ownership. The joy of being entrusted with all His gifts and blessings. And it really comes out in the next question. And after it was sold, even after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? 
The word for disposal there is the word for authority. It's the exact same word Jesus uses in his great commission when he says, all authority has been given to me. And therefore, go and make disciples. It's the exact same word. And so what is in these words is, is a wonderful, beautiful theology that actually God intended right from Genesis. Genesis 1. He blessed Adam and Eve to subdue the earth. He gave them an authority as his second you know, right-hand man, so to speak. I am entrusting you to be stewards of this, this indescribable blessing and gift and multiply it, do well with it, enjoy manipulating it and working with it and, and using it to bless. And so even after it was sold, it was still theirs to steward. And so God is not about, and, and Russ addressed this very well last week, God is not communist. The gospel is not communist. As Chris and I were reflecting on this this past week, he pointed me to Hebrews 10, verse 34, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Hebrews is addressing believers here. Since you knew, this was their perspective, that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, meaning the new creation and eternity with Christ and Christ as the one true, most beautiful, precious, valuable treasure in the end and life with him in eternity. We've asked this question many times here, and I think it's so important, especially as we live in Canada, where we are, compared to the rest of the world, affluent. And, and really, we are living in such comfort. Do I see my money and material things as tools or treasures? How do you answer that question? Next, we have to test our affections. So next, how deeply attached am I to precious relationships? You see this come out in verse 2. But a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. It takes two to tango. And here Ananias and Sapphira were in cahoots, and they did this together. They planned this together. Now, their sin here, to be specific, it's not that they held back some. And that was part of it. But they could have just come honestly before the apostles, before the Lord, before the Holy Spirit, and said, well, we've sold our property, and we're going to give X percent. And we're going to hold on to the other percent for whatever other purposes. I can't say for certain, but I think that would have flown. But here, together, they decide intentionally premeditatingly, to lie with each other's knowledge. Now, the point I want to draw out here is that we need to also test how willing we are to forsake God, to forsake pursuing Christ because of certain precious people in our life. I have friends that I've been willing to change their theology on certain things because of a son or a daughter. 
And, and they, they just, they so much, I mean, it's coming, who can blame them? It's coming from a place that they just want their son and daughter to be, to have the, the peace that they're loved by Christ no matter what. But when they're honest with Scripture, they're, they're forsaking the teaching of Scripture. I have an unbelieving friend, and he said this to me verbatim, because he thinks of all his relatives, his, his immediate family, and his best friend who has already passed away as an unbeliever. I would rather be in hell forever than be in heaven forever apart from my family. Those are some pretty bold words. And I asked him in that conversation, do, do you really mean that? If they're really, I mean, I believe there is heaven and hell. But for you, just as you're trying to contemplate this, if there really is a hell, do you really mean that? Now, in contrast, the picture of the girl you see up here is, was a portrait, a painting of uh, Magdalena Luther and Martin Luther. Here's my first ode to him. Um, his daughter, when she was 13 or 14, she passed away very young. And he records in somewhat of an autobiography uh, just his pains. And he's very honest. Though my spirit deep down inside is at peace that she is with you, my earthly self is torn to pieces. And he was admitting that he was even angry at God. And just in his earthly self, that he was having trouble to reconcile with his soul, his spirit that understood by faith that she is with Christ and that he's going to be reunited with her in Christ someday. Even then, the, this master of the Ref Reformation and justification by faith and having this great hope in heaven... He was angry at God for the loss of his beautiful daughter whom he described had the most wide, bright eyes. But at the end of the day, what he held on to was this great hope in Christ. I have one friend who has forsaken his faith because he prayed to God, but his God did not heal his his father the way he had hoped. Next, how deeply attached am I to man's recognition? Now, I share this by grace and, and just to um, let you guys know, I'm, I'm human just like you. And I have all my struggles and, and journey, ups and downs just like you. And, and one of my, I'm realizing my affections is man's recognition and one way where it comes out and this is not i don't want people to come after the service and all of a sudden start affirming me for my sermon and all that but but every sunday i preach there's just this inner battle like did people you know get connected did you speak to them lord and so forth and so to tell a story about that um when i first got married and the first uh sunday that linda would be joining me uh at my ministry at my old church 
I was looking forward to now I'm married in this honeymoon stage. My wife, I'm going to receive all this affirmation from my wife about my sermon. And that first sermon, I kid you not, first sermon, I'm looking out into, you know, preaching. And then I just see at the back first, you know, watch the time. And then it turned into... (laughs) My idyllic picture of marriage just shattered right there. Right? Now, this comes out here, and, and it's an age-old human problem, a human uh, emotional attachment. Peter, like a surgeon, gets to Ananias' affections in verse 4. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And what Peter's saying in different words is, you're trying to climb the social status ladder of man. And so you've put up this front with your wife. You're appearing great. Maybe you saw Joseph Barnabas receive all this adulation because of his generous deed of selling his real estate and bringing the proceeds. And and you wanted that same recognition. But Peter prophetically says to him, diagnoses him accurately, look, don't play that game. That was the wrong game you decided to play. Yes, man has set up this elaborate system of how we feel better about ourselves in this world and culture, our society. But that's all fabricated. And the one measuring stick that truly matters is your soul before God. And God sees everything. He sees your heart. He sees beyond the facade. And He sees your heart. He sees your deepest affections. And so verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. That phrase there, where I take some comfort for Ananias and Sapphira, is that phrase, breathed his last. It, it, it can make an argument that in Scripture, it's a phrase that uh, alludes to serving your purpose in your generation. And as you've breathed your last, you've, you've lived out what God intended in some sense. And And this is not the main point. It's a tangent. But I hold on to the hope that even then they were saved by grace, even with this mistake in the end. But the point being, desiring recognition is usually a symptom of a deeper heart attachment. And it's this, that this life, this life, in this world, according to man's measuring stick, is supremely precious. So test your affections for that again. I love one of C.S. Lewis's well-quoted excerpts from Mere Christianity. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Meaning no matter how much you chase man's recognition, it's never going to be enough. No matter how attached to become, and no matter how many possessions and money and material things you, you accrue, it'll never be enough. So now we get to the next affection to test. How deeply attached am I to self-justification? And we see this in Sapphira. Unknowing that her husband has passed away, in verse 7, Luke picks up, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes. 
Deny, 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 deny. It's a tactic a lot of people take when it comes to uh, arbitrations and, and legal matters and so forth. Deny, 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 deny. And she said yes, meaning in her heart she was self-justified. She held on to her rationale. Her and, and I probably talked it through. You know, we'll do this for this reason, this reason, that reason. We need this to set aside this amount for these purposes and maybe what we want to do down the road in the future, this business or that and so forth. But we want to, you know, not offend anyone perhaps in the church and not be judged and so forth. And they, I don't know what the rationalization was, but they had a justification. And we, our hearts, are masters of shifting the blame, of finding any reason that everyone else is wrong and not me. My second ode to Martin Luther then. Uh, he writes this, he wrote this as uh, a recounting of how the Spirit was working in his life to come to this aha moment of justification by faith, by grace alone, through faith alone. So this is after the fact, 1545, and you know all this, what, he's recounting what happened in uh, 1515, 1617. And he was, he's recounting here his wrestling with this need to be justified before God, but not being able to find it. And so I read, But I, blameless monk that I was, he, was, he, he committed himself to the highest uh, monk order, the Augustinian order, the most strict order. Blameless monk that I was, felt that before God, I was a sinner with an extremely troubled conscience. You don't have to be a monk struggle with an extremely troubled conscience. I couldn't be sure that God was appeased to my satisfaction. I did not love, no, rather I hated the just God who punishes sinners because he knew that he had no chance before this just God. In silence, if I did not blaspheme, then certainly I grumbled vehemently and got angry at God. I said, isn't it enough that we miserable sinners lost for all eternity because of original sin are oppressed by every kind of calamity through the Ten Commandments? Why does God heap sorrow upon sorrow through the Gospel? Now here, as a footnote, it was the wrong understanding of the Gospel. He was still working towards the pure Gospel of faith by Justification by grace alone, through faith alone. And through the gospel, threaten us with justice and his wrath. This was how I was raging with wild and disturbed conscience. So how about you? In your pursuit of justification, are, are, are you addicted? Are you attached, emotionally attached to your own self-justification? Do you have your reasons why you're a good person? Or can you step towards a more honest place like Luther, at least first to go through that phase where you realize you are helpless before a holy God? Of course I'm not going to leave you there. How deeply finally attached am I to eternity with the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit in the new creation. The last part of our section, verses 12 to 16, 
I'll just read verse 12, and it goes to the scribe again. Now many signs and wonders, and Luke was sort of wrapping up even what happened with Ananias and Sapphira was a sign and wonder. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Where's Solomon's portico? It's a section in the temple. And so remember in Acts, in the first, uh, it's like first seven or eight chapters, Luke's showing us that the gospel of grace is starting to redeem the old Jewish law and, and trying to bring the Mosaic law, what God had started earlier, to redemption and to full fruition, that this is what it was all pointing towards, grace in Jesus. And so these signs and wonders, simply put, they're meant to give us, they're meant to be a, a pointer, a, a new creation, our final eternity. And so Paul describes, or sorry, uh, Luke continues to describe in verse 14, more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now, interestingly, that word healed, it's where we get the English word therapy. When you read it in the Greek, it, it, it looks like therapy. And so what everyone is looking for, we're a therapy-driven culture today, aren't we? Everything is about therapy. But the therapy that we're all ultimately looking for is this future hope of life in Christ and the love of God forever. So how deeply attached am I to eternity with the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit in the new creation? If, if you took every one of your desires, every blessing, even every fulfilled longing in your heart, and you made a giant pile of it, can you say sincerely from your heart, from your deepest affection, I can't believe eternity with God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and the church in the new creation is going to be better than this. That's what you have to be able to say. Now, a question to move us in the right direction then towards that is, how deeply aware am I of Jesus' affection for me? Put differently, how willing... Can you answer this question? How willing was Jesus to let go of self-sufficiency, his own riches, his own precious relationships, man's recognition, self-justification? How willing was he to let go of these things? He let go of all these things. When he was on this earth, he said, I do nothing of my own accord but by how the Spirit guides me and the Father's will. He let go of all His riches in heaven, His throne, His glory in heaven, to come down and be found on this earth, born in a poor stable. On the cross, we know He let go of His most precious relationship, being forsaken by the Father. And we certainly know that man or Jesus did not live for man's recognition and applause. And Jesus waited 
on the Father and the Spirit to vindicate Him, to justify Him and raise Him from the dead. So we end where we started. How does Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 16 call us to place our faith in Jesus? Confess to the crucified Jesus your earthly affections. Don't let them become ultimate. Give them to Jesus who died on the cross and instead receive and overflow the risen Jesus' affection for you. He gave up all those things because of his affection for you. Because you are loved. Because you are that precious in his sight. And as we are just washed over by the affection of Christ for us, then we'll become, as another imagery that the Apostle Paul in, in Hebrews points to, like a, an Olympic athlete, unencumbered. We'll be unencumbered by all these earthly affections. They'll just play, take their proper place as tools, not ultimate treasures. And we'll live out our stewardship and run free to live out mission in Christ. Amen.